Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Voting rights and the filibuster. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Conversation. I'm David Schuster. Democrats have reached another crucial moment in their effort to try to pass major voting rights legislation. Republicans, for the second time, have blocked the Democratic efforts just to simply even have a debate, never mind actually have an up or down vote. And that has revised the focus and the debate over whether or not Democrats should change the filibuster rules so they don't need 60 votes to get something through, but rather just a majority. Joining us to talk about this is Grace Panetta. She is a senior politics reporter for Insider. Grace, thanks for being with us. What's the temperature in Capitol Hill among the Democrats for changing the filibuster right now? Yeah, it's a really great question. Obviously, efforts to reform the filibuster have taken a backseat to everything else going on on Capitol Hill with passing President Biden's economic agenda. There are quite a few members of the Democratic caucus. I would say most are probably open to some form of filibuster reform. There are some that are way more vocal on it than others. But of course, we have the two main holdout senators, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, who have expressed opposition to changing the filibuster threshold in its current form. But we might see some changes to that with regards to the upcoming fight over the debt ceiling. So things are a little bit in flux right now. You mentioned Joe Manchin, he suggested, hey, look, give me a chance at changing some of the voting rights legislation. Let me see if I can get some Republicans on board with my proposals. Democrats said fine, and he, he couldn't get a single Republican. Were people surprised? Was Joe Manchin surprised? Senator Manchin may have been surprised. I was not surprised at all. That piece of legislation, the Freedom to Vote Act, was described as a compromise bill, but it was really a compromise with Manchin and the other Democratic senators. Um, there, you know, Republicans were not really involved in the drafting of that bill. Uh, they weren't, you know, involved in the process. So it was not surprising at all to me that none would get on board. It was still a very large sweeping bill with huge, huge, huge expansions um, of voting opportunities and changes to campaign finance law. So to me, it was not surprising. But Manchin has a strongly held view that this kind of reform should be bipartisan. Any suggestion that Manchin, based on his own experience now trying to get Republican support, may have moved a little bit towards the other Democrats on filibuster reform? Not that I've seen so far. Again, of course, just because everything regarding the reconciliation bill has been really dominating the focus on the Hill. But I haven't seen any indication of that. His position in response to the suggestion that the filibuster threshold should be lowered specifically for voting rights legislation is, oh, that'll come back to bite us when we're in the minority and Republicans are in control. And I haven't seen any indication that he's changed his position on that. You mentioned, of course, the reconciliation bill and how much oxygen that's taking up right now. But it does seem like once the Democrats get through this, get through the reconciliation, then of course, voting rights will be top of their agenda. They're so outraged by some of the state legislatures and what they have done. Um, is there any room for creativity? Uh, and what I, the reason I ask this is I've seen some people say, look, maybe for voting rights, instead of focusing on what it takes to override a filibuster, and that is 60 votes, maybe you put the burden on people who wanna sustain it and say, okay, Republicans, if you wanna sustain a filibuster, you have to have 39, 40, whatever the number is of senators literally in the chamber and actually doing the filibuster in order to keep this going. 
Oh, absolutely. I'm really glad you mentioned that. That's something um, recently one senator who's changed his position on filibuster reform in the past few years is Angus King of Maine, who's an independent who caucuses with Democrats. And he made that exact argument on a call with myself and some other reporters last week that the presumption should maybe be put on the minority, like like you were saying, to be in the chamber to sustain the filibuster or to bring back the talking filibuster um, and have a filibuster really be a filibuster where you have to be talking because currently, if something doesn't reach the 60 vote threshold, it just doesn't happen. So I think shifting the burden back onto the minority is something that may end up being more palatable than lowering the threshold for certain legislation. And if they do shift that burden onto sustaining a filibuster, does that change the math then for Democrats? The Democrats then feel like, okay, maybe we maybe we don't get to 60, but maybe we get 53, 54, whatever it is. Uh, and you have enough Republicans who are just like, you know what, I just I just don't want to be seen as filibustering voting rights. Maybe, although the, the thing about voting rights specifically is it's gotten so, so politicized. Really, the two parties could not be further away on this issue at this point. We are a long way from the last time Congress actually passed voting rights legislation in a bipartisan manner or election legislation was almost 20 years ago now with the Help America Vote Act. And when, for example, with the Freedom to Vote Act, a lot of Republicans will say, you know, this isn't voting rights, this is a federal takeover. So, you know, I do think that maybe that reluctance um, you know, to not be want to be seen as blocking something may be a little lessened just because of how politicized it has become. But it absolutely would change the calculus if Republicans had to be on the floor in sufficient numbers to block debate on something. Republicans like to talk about security of elections, making sure that there isn't fraud. Are there items that Democrats have either put in their voting rights legislation or could put in that might assuage some Republicans and at least make the Republicans say, okay, yeah, there are some things focused on election fraud that are our great concerns, whereas the Democrats, of course, are more concerned about voting access. Yeah, I also think that sometimes in a lot of cases, voting access and election integrity are do not have to be opposites. And in fact, often can go together in good policy. And we see this a lot at the state level. In the Freedom to Vote Act on this point about election integrity, there are provisions requiring all states to use handmarked paper ballots or paper ballots in some form, which are the most secure way to vote and requiring things like post election audits and including grants for cybersecurity upgrades, which are all related to election security and integrity. So some of those are in there. And this issue you pointed out about some Republicans fearing the sort of a federal power grab over what should be the provision of, of states. Um, do you have a sense about where the Republican caucus is on that? How many Republicans are simply arguing against this based on what they see as federal overreach versus how many Republicans really aren't that concerned about you know federal powers versus state powers and simply don't like what the Democrats are doing? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I think it's I think it's a bit of both. It's actually interesting uh, you raised that because I recently asked um, a few weeks ago Senator Rick Scott, who has introduced sweeping uh, election legislation last year that would set federal voter ID requirements and other rules around absentee voting. I asked him, you know, you say this bill is a federal takeover, but you put forth this legislation, and you didn't really have a response to that. He just said, I think we need voter ID. And that was the extent of it. So I think some of it is, you know, maybe genuine concern about federal overreach. But at the same time, I think it's also just the politicization of this issue and Republicans, you know, having very, very different views on this than their Democratic counterparts. And then back to the filibuster. If Democrats do enact some sort of filibuster reform, is it possible for Democrats to simply carve out filibuster reform simply for voting rights, just as the Republicans carved out a sort of change in the filibuster for federal judicial nominees? 
Yeah, they could, and they might end up doing that for the debt ceiling. Um, but of course, you need the 50 vote uh, majority to do that. And of course, the two main roadblocks to that are again Mansion Cinema, who have specifically argued against uh, a filibuster, a filibuster carve out. But we, you know, maybe the situation around the debt ceiling will change that. Maybe Biden recently expressed willingness to reforming the filibuster in his recent CNN town hall. The calculus could change, but yeah, the problem is in such a closely divided Senate, you don't you don't have a majority for everything um, that you know people might want to enact. And we've spoken about Senator Manchin, of course, and he's a big player, of course, in the reconciliation bill because of his concern about you know clean energy and punishing coal. But Kristen Sinema, the other Democratic centrist who seems to sort of be blocking a filibuster change, any indication that she's moving at all on this, or is she just as much of a thorn in the side as before? And and has the Democratic approach to her changed at all? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think there are some really key differences between Manchin and Cinema on this, and they often understandably get grouped together. Cinema is way, way, way less clear about her positions on things than Manchin. She doesn't really talk to reporters at all in the hallways of the Capitol. She's not nearly as responsive and as vocal about her positions and how they're changing as Senator Manchin is. So it's harder to get a handle on her. Um, but there's no indication that her views on the filibuster have changed or become any different. And I guess I really think how this reconciliation bill turns out will be determinative for how other Democrats approach her and deal with her in the future. And some Democrats, particularly those on the left progressive, they say, look, if, if we can't pass voting rights legislation, that will absolutely kill any potential enthusiasm in the base heading into 2024. Do more centrist Democrats, the Democratic leadership, do they share those same concerns about the voting rights legislation, the same sense of urgency? Yeah, I think you know Leader Schumer has made it a priority. He determines what gets to the floor, um, and he put both the For the People Act earlier this summer and the Freedom to Vote Act sort of directly to a vote. So I think it is an issue that's important to him. I'm not really sure to what extent they see it as existential that it will determine the turnout in 2022 and 2024. But there is sort of a sense that you know if they don't act now, they're going to pass up this opportunity because Democrats very might well lose the majority next year in the Senate and. Who's to say when they'll get it back? And I've seen a number of people say that Democrats will face a choice between either you keep the filibuster as it is or you protect democracy. Um, you have a sense of timing as to when that actual sort of make or break moment might uh, might appear. It's so hard to say everything's so in flux right now with the way Congress is functioning. I really think obviously both this economic agenda and getting the government funding and debt ceiling taken care of um, is gonna determine more of the timeline and anything. But I do expect that this issue is gonna come back up in both chambers um, next year as we get closer to the midterms themselves. Mm -hmm. Interesting stuff, Grace Panetta, she's the senior politics reporter at Insider. She has written extensively about the voting rights and the filibuster and the various machinations on Capitol Hill. And of course, she's following everything with reconciliation as well. Grace, thanks so thanks so much for joining us, we, we do appreciate it. And a little prediction here on this end, I have a feeling that one way or another, Democrats will, and Grace, you can call me silly. I think they're <laughs> gonna find some way to reform the filibuster. Maybe it is that sort of strange approach of saying, okay, let's put the burden on people who wanna sustain it, and not the, not the people who wanna override it. I think they're gonna get it done, but maybe I'm silly for being an optimist in this day and time, particularly not in Washington. Well. In any case, <laughs> Grace, well. thanks so much, Grace, we appreciate it. Take care. Having me. Okay, we'll continue after this. 
The Biden administration says it may have a new legislative approach in terms of dealing with climate change. Welcome back to the conversation, I'm David Schuster. The Biden White House says it has a package of clean energy strategies that it that it believes could reach the similar gas emissions reduction as some of the proposals that were quashed by centrist Democrats, including West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin. So what is in the details of all of this. Joining us now is Thomas Meyer. He's the National Organizing Manager for Food and Water Watch. Uh, Thomas, if I have this correct, the, the previous Democratic proposal really sort of focused on the power providers and trying to get them to stop burning coal and that what sort of thing. It seems like this new proposal is a group of incentives aimed at the agricultural and industrial users of power. Do I have that correct? Yeah, so the the proposal is you know still still coming together. Obviously, I think the the bottom line though is that it's it's pretty clear that that Joe Manchin and other fossil fuel supporters in Congress are not going to allow policies that would get at the root of the climate crisis and actually keep fossil fuels on the ground and protect communities from the harms of fossil fuels and climate change itself. But is it possible, I guess, is it possible, I mean, instead of punishing, you know, coal-fired power plants, is it possible to, it sounds like the Biden White House strategy is to essentially starve them to say, okay, if you are using electricity or power from a coal-powered fire, coal-powered plant, we're gonna try to give you, the agricultural sectors, businesses, incentives to use alternative kinds of power. And we sort of leave the coal companies alone in the hopes that the market then causes these coal-powered plants to be squeezed. It remains to be seen again exactly what the what the policies and the the package are going to be. What we've seen so far, though, from from Joe Manchin especially, is his support for what we would call really fossil fuel industry schemes to keep themselves afloat and alive. So um, the, there's a top line number going around of 500 or 600 billion dollars for quote unquote climate policies in the package. Uh, it looks like a big chunk of that is actually going to be to subsidize things like carbon capture and sequestration, blue hydrogen, other schemes that rely on fracked gas and other fossil fuels as a foundation uh, rather than actually phasing out those those fuel sources in a responsible way. Is it possible uh, to get rid of to get the gas emissions reduction goals that everybody wants? without essentially shutting down coal and fossil fuel industries. It, it isn't, and that's, you know, that needs to be done, like I said, in a responsible way. And, and I think the climate justice movement has been very clear that um, calls to, to end fossil fuels overnight, to shut down industry overnight is not what anyone is demanding or expecting. Rather, we need a, a, a responsible managed decline of fossil fuel production and use in a way that takes care of uh, communities that have been impacted and, and workers that are, uh, are part of the industry. Um, but not something that is essentially bailing out the corporate executives and allowing them to continue to extract fossil fuels, pollute communities and drive the climate crisis. But it's been very clear from the UN, the International Energy Agency, you know, 99.9% of the world's climate scientists that no, we cannot meet the very, very urgent demands of the climate crisis without keeping fossil fuels in the ground and making that transition now very, very quickly. We've left ourselves very little time. Putting aside the political pragmatic realities that exist right now, what would be your ideal 
solution, the ideal legislation, assuming you could wave a magic wand, get 60 votes for whatever you wanted. What would be your ideal piece of legislation from the Biden White House to deal with this? So in, in terms of actions that the Biden administration could take, uh, Food and Water Watch is a part of a coalition called Build Back Fossil Free that actually has a, a blueprint of 25 executive actions that President Biden could take. Um, and, and all of those could be paired with, with legislative proposals as well. Um, but the bottom line is we as the United States, as the um, his, historically the largest emitter and driver of the climate crisis have a unique responsibility. Um, and, and President Biden has unique authorities under existing law to, uh, to jumpstart this transition. He can direct federal agencies to reject new permits and proposals for fossil fuel projects. It's insanity to be considering any new fossil fuel pipelines, crude oil or frac gas export terminals, drilling, mining, etc. Anything new is, is absolute madness. Um, he can direct his federal agencies to reject anything new uh, in terms of fossil fuel infrastructure projects. He can also declare a climate emergency, a national emergency, and unlock some specific powers. Um, everything from reinstating the crude oil export ban that, that Congress lifted back in 2015 to jumpstarting uh, and investing uh, huge amounts of money from the existing federal budget into a just transition uh, into rapid renewable energy construction and development and deployment across the country. Um, so again, we've got a, a long list of executive actions he can take that can be paired with obviously um, the financing that, that Congress has uh, the unique responsibility to handle. In your estimation, what is keeping Joe Biden, President Biden from these executive actions? I think uh, there's there seems to be a, a sort of personal preference for um, bipartisan <laughs> legislating um, that probably stems to, to his days in the Senate. Um, that is, I think, an approach that is uh, a product of a bygone era. <laughs> Clearly, um, you know, consensus across the aisle around um, something like climate change, where the entire scientific community, um, the entire world has consensus on this issue, and yet there's not, you know, 50 votes in the Senate for even the most basic, rudimentary, or watered-down climate policies. You know, Biden's living in a different era to think that he's going to be able to get um, something through through Congress. I think there's also clearly, you know, political calculations, and um, I've worked on a lot of campaigns uh, taking on the fossil fuel industry, and it's always a battle. Um, over you know who's got who's got more political power, and clearly the fossil fuel industry um, and its other sort of supportive entities um, have a lot of political power to throw around. We heard that you know Joe Biden gets on weekly calls with Exxon lobbyists, um, and you know Biden uh, is appealing to a certain constituency, whether it's the industry themselves or the people that he thinks supports the industry um, in sort of holding back or, or watering down his climate proposals. Um, but President, you know, Biden, President Biden has talked about wanting to have some sort of climate legislation and have the votes for it before he goes overseas. Um, is it possible for the United States with a more watered down version like what it seems like the Biden White House is talking about to, to go overseas and say, okay, the United States is somehow back 
uh, as a leader on climate change because we pass or we're about to pass something rather than nothing? I, I don't think it is. I, you know, they'll they'll give it their best shot, I'm sure. Um, and the the UN climate negotiations you mentioned start this weekend and continue for the next two weeks. So there's there's that window essentially of the next two and a half weeks, maybe to get something through Congress. Um, but I, you know, I think uh, those of us in the in the climate justice movement and certainly other world leaders would have a hard time looking at what's on the table. Um, again, coming from the, you know. The historically the largest emitter, the biggest contributor to the climate crisis, and thinking that that represents meaningful leadership. What we are calling on Biden to do is actually use the authority that he has right now and say, look, yes, we need to do things through Congress. We need to to get some you know more comprehensive federal proposals um, passed and into law. But before I go and send my administration to Glasgow to these UN climate talks, I'm going to take executive action and use the power that I have again to stop fossil fuel projects, to declare a climate emergency, to jumpstart the just transition to renewable energy. He can do that today. He's got, you know, with the stroke of a pen in the Oval Office, um, he can take those action. And that would show serious leadership um, and really put, I think, other world leaders in a position to follow that um, rather than following this sort of partisan obstructionism and, and bickering that, that everyone's watching uh, right now. And a lot of us have been watching the news lately, and it seems like there are reports now every week about you know, scientists saying that climate change is even worse than we imagined, uh, that there are more billion dollar catastrophes happening at a faster pace. And so we're already paying for the change in climate and what it's doing to our weather systems. Um, but it's striking to so many of us that none of that seems to have changed either the minds of or the urgency of the Biden White House or diminished the power of the fossil fuel industry. Yeah, well, it's, it's certainly up to the, the you know the ambition and and the urgency of the climate movement. Um, and I would point to uh, the decisions by uh, New York's new governor Kathy Hochul this morning, rejecting plans for two new frac gas power plants in the lead up to this COP as exactly the kind of climate action that you know other governors, the president, other executives can take around the country to say enough is enough. These plans, they actually said in their, in their rejection of the permits, these plans are inconsistent with the climate goals and the climate pledges that, that New York State has made. Um, president Biden and, and other world leaders need to, to follow that lead and take those kinds of actions. Thomas Meyer, National Organizing Manager of Food and Water Watch. Thomas, a good of you to join us on this topic. We appreciate it, thank you. Thanks for having me. And that'll do it for this edition of The Conversation. On behalf of Asher Cofield and Brandon Limer, I'm David Schuster. Thanks for watching.